Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for June 3rd, 2021, the Murder Mystery Edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I've made everyone else late today. I'm sorry. Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. I'm sorry for being late. It's good to see you. Hello, Emily. No worries at all. And John Dickerson of CBS. How do we describe you? Oh, I don't know. I'm a man of all a thousand hats in a world of increasingly disrupted and uncertainty. Uh, You can just say of CBS News. John Dickerson of CBS News, who is in fact not wearing a hat is in New York. Hello, John. Sorry I'm late. Good morning. Oh, oh, it's fine. This week, the showdown over restrictive voting laws in Texas and just about everywhere else, and are the Democrats doomed when all these laws do get passed? Then, what happened to the Biden agenda anyway? Why is nothing passing? Why are there no new laws, no new policies, no new nothing? Then, violent crime is surging in American cities. We'll talk to sociologist Patrick Sharkey about why that is. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. You know how at any gym there's an old guy who never seems to work out, but he's always in the sauna or steam room when you go there and he's holding forth to three other guys about his boat or capital gains taxes? Now that I am back at the gym, I've realized that at my gym, that guy is former Justice Breyer. He really, really likes to talk about his boat. Like, a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that, I like that one actually. That one uh, that was pretty good. At least it was short. I'm, that's 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 what I'm trying to do. Is if I can't end the bit, at least I can I can uh, make it short. Okay, Texas Democrats orchestrated a mass flight from the Capitol in Austin to impede passage of yet another bill, another state legislative bill to restrict voting. One of more than thirty such bills that are working the way their way through various Republican-controlled state legislatures under. A totally preposterous, bogus, lying claim that these bills will protect the integrity of the vote. So 
what did the Texas state legislature, the Democrats in the legislature do, and will they actually stop this bill, John? Well, they fled at the end of the session when the um, bill was being considered. They left the chamber, which deprived it of the quorum necessary to go forward. And so for the moment, it hasn't passed. Um, One of the most contentious provisions at the last minute, although there are many different parts of it that are contentious. Um, One of them was a prohibition on Sunday voting that you couldn't vote before 1 p.m., which would deprive Democrats who use the souls to the polls voting um, where you go to church and then you go vote. It would make it so you couldn't vote. So this is one thing that actually has changed subsequent to Democrats leaving the chamber. Republicans said, oh, sorry, it was a typo which um, it was meant to be 11 o'clock instead of one, which um, was surprising since one of the Republicans who had uh, debated the bill on the floor had made a case for why it should be one o'clock. So it turns out that typo actually retroactively got into the mouth of one of the people advocating for making the limitation at one o'clock, which is to say that um, it was a unsubstantiated claim that it was a typo. Anyway, that's likely to change, but that's one small effort. The governor said that they should take this up in a special session, which they undoubtedly will, and it will pass probably because Republicans have the majority in both houses and the Democrats can only do so much. So Emily, what would this bill do in Texas and how is it similar or different in scope from laws in other states like Georgia and Florida, Arizona? I mean, it overlaps. So all of these bills are trying to make voting harder at the margins. This bill particularly tries to end or curtail methods of voting that helped people vote in places like Houston, the more Black and Latino parts of Texas, by doing things like taking away access to 24-hour voting or um, limiting the number of drop boxes. And so I think what we're seeing is this idea that Increasing access to the vote because of the pandemic is now to be kind of condemned and stopped if you're a Republican. And I feel like there's something a little reflexive about this. I mean, partly this is frustrating to me because I did a ton of reporting on methods of voting before and after the election, and things actually worked remarkably well. Um, If you talk to election officials, Republicans and Democrats, they will tell you that. And a lot of these forms of access, probably we should stick with them after the pandemic, even if they were emergency measures, because it's a good idea to have drop-off boxes. It's a good idea to have some places where people who work during the day can go to vote in the middle of the night. And there's no evidence that has associated these tactics or these techniques, I should say, with fraud. And so what you're having is this um, return to this kind of Republican dogma that it's bad for their party if more people vote. I think the number of people who are actually affected by these measures on the margins is probably relatively small. And it is certainly depressing to see this bogus justification of, you know, the election being stolen as the reason. And there's something that feels like they're fighting the last war to me about all of this. On the other hand, the Democrats arguably are also fighting the last war because some of the most important state provisions really make it easier to overturn the results of an election. And the Democrats' big bill in Congress, H.R. 1, does not address that. It also doesn't address these systemic, you know, power imbalance problems that our whole constitutional system has that is leading, that is making it much more likely to have minority rule. And now I'm talking about the um, composition of the Senate and gerrymandering, etc. But 
you know, those proposals that really would have the kind of structural change are just out of reach in a Joe Manchin controlled Senate or so it seems. Just to go back, I think, to to that point about changing election administration, that's happening at the state level all across in Georgia, Arizona, Texas, Arkansas. And I just want to spend one more beat on that is the which isn't to say that what's happening in Texas itself isn't interesting, but there is a increasingly popular view among Democrats and and among uh, those who study the process of democracy that basically what's happening is they're changing the composition of the officials and how you certify elections. So it's not just whether people can get to the polls or not, which Emily points out, you don't there's political science on both sides that argues that there's a way in which these restrictions actually might encourage people to vote in a way uh, rather than restricting it. But it doesn't matter if everybody gets to the polls. Let's say more people get to the polls, but the other team controls the apparatus of counting the votes and the apparatus of appealing uh, counts to votes, then who gets to the polls doesn't matter because you've got a backstop in public officials And not only public officials, but those who will be voted into the jobs will know because they've seen previous public officials who tried to keep to the rules get punished for it. They will know that they're retaining their job security and or at being elevated within their party requires maintaining these new kinds of restrictions. I I agree with you both, or particularly what you were saying, Emily, that these new powers to potentially overturn elections are what's most threatening in the bills and in the kind of either and in the conversation around here. These will be states that will have, in fact, done a whole bunch of work to make it harder for people to vote. They're putting in these voting restrictions. And I guess I'm curious about how the mechanics of overturning these elections will be, because I think what they're what they want to be able to do is say these election results cannot be trusted when they're results they don't like. And yet they're also saying, oh, we're we are ensuring the security of the election by putting in all these new restrictions to make sure that the results can be trusted. Ooh, that's an you're, you're right about that contradiction. That's interesting. And yet one imagines that in the break the glass moment of the election result not being what those in power want, they will find a way to resolve that contradiction. John, you going back for many, many years have always trotted out the saw that when you assault the right to vote, it causes people to rise up to protect their vote. But at some point, at some point you reach, the suppression works. Ultimately, if you make it harder for people to vote or you take them off the rolls, they will not vote. They will, will vote less, and that will have a significant effect on the electorate. And who it benefits in terms of which party it benefits, I think, is unknown. But certainly, you yeah. can reduce the vote. Have we reached that point where we're now going to start to see suppression? Because the Certainly in the 2020 election, we had a huge turnout. Right. I mean, and you had a huge turnout in states. Well, let's look at Georgia, for example, where you had a huge turnout delinked from the presidential race. So you have big turnouts in presidential campaigns and you can argue, well, that's the nationalization of politics. And so if you get a big contentious presidential, you're going to have lots of people voting. But in the elections after the presidential election in Georgia, you still had large turnout. And part of that was based on the mobilization and the efforts held over from the previous gubernatorial race in Georgia, where Democrats felt like the system was was rigged against them. And they rose up and they organized and they did all that was required to turn out. Now, why one party has to keep rolling the rock up the hill, um, you know, that doesn't seem to be a fair system. But to your question, It's unclear. It's unclear whether we're at that point or whether 
all of this press coverage of these rule changes and everything that people are able to see creates a, a greater public understanding of this and therefore perhaps uh, increases turnout or starts the process earlier of identifying voters. We just don't know yet. I mean, the other thing that's kind of bizarre about this is that what the Republicans are doing is seeding enormous mistrust in the whole system with their own base. And so, David, you pointed out how that could get in the way of their messaging if they really wanted to overturn an election result. They're trying to make it more secure. But at bottom, they're really saying you shouldn't necessarily trust the system. And that's become a kind of article of faith, even in states like Iowa, where the only people who are not going to be voting are are not the only people, but what, where one imagines that some of the people deterred from voting are Republicans too. We're talking about like maybe a more rural and white base, but they have the same kind of markers as Democrats who vote infrequently. So I really worry about that because it's a kind of divide between the parties that is about the integrity of the election system itself as opposed to some sort of policy matter. But that's kind of where we are. And it's so also frustrating that we're not doing the basic things that would really increase small D Democratic participation, like automatic voter registration or same day registration, these things that are not associated with fraud that really do make a difference. So what is going on in Texas? The state itself, Emily, is getting more liberal. It's less white. It's more urban. And yet this legislature, in addition to these voter restrictions, is passing incredibly conservative laws. There's a six-week abortion ban. There's a a law which allows unlicensed handgun carrying, which is just crazy that you could just walk around. Anyone, no license, just carry around a handgun. What is happening? Why is it, as the state becomes, in fact, less conservative, it's becoming way more conservative? I mean, it seems like the more right wing elements of the party have just totally taken it over and that there used to be this kind of moderating more, you know, Republican, like uh, economically conservative wing that had more power. I mean, I wonder, John, I wonder if you have thoughts about this. The Texas legislature is very much a part time affair, right? You get paid like around seven thousand dollars a year. You have to have a job because, I mean, yeah, $7,000 a year. Uh, and it's not the thing that like necessarily defines your identity or that you do full time, even though this is a huge state. I mean, we have a part time legislature in Connecticut. Um, and I have mixed feelings about it. But it's like a little baby state compared to Texas. And I wonder if that kind of dabbling has had some effect on who gets elected and moving the Republican Party to the right. But maybe that's wrong. I'm standing up for dabbling before joining. I think dabbling is fine. Like a part-time legislature seems fine. Good. I'm for it. Anyway, go ahead, John. I mean, obviously, you can make arguments for and against. 140 days they meet every two years. You know, the part-time, the noble, honorable part-time uh, citizen legislator is a romantic idea that has great benefit, which is that people who are not professional politicians use their common sense from their real lived experiences and shape legislation that affects real people and doesn't get hung up in the idiosyncrasies of, of the clubhouse. However, if politics is, is driven by and elections are driven by the most ideological members of your party, and perhaps ever more so because your party is dwindling and therefore you don't have a broad group to um, pull from, you need to really fire up the limited number or the shrinking number of people you have, then you have to feed them um, you know, ever rarer red meat. 
in order to get them to turn out. And if politics more broadly is a base battle and not a battle over things in the middle, um, then red meat is more important. And if you have a general falling of norms, the idea of bipartisan cooperation, the sort of George uh, W. Bush working with Bob Bullock to make laws in Texas. I mean, remember that George W. Bush ran for president on his ability to work with a Democrat in Texas, the Lieutenant Governor Bob Bullock, in in 2000. That was his like main pitch to the country. And so it just gives you a sense of how far things have traveled. But I think that Texas is a, um, I think those forces we've been describing are part of what makes it need to be more conservative. And I just want to add on to this one more thing about there's an opportunity cost for spending all this time on cultural issues, which is not dealing with the response to and the rebuilding after the coronavirus. Texas had an enormous failure of its electric grid that's not being addressed. So the more time you spend on red meat, the less time you're spending on other things. And then to the point about voting rights, you know, what happens is basically you have somebody yelled fire in a crowded theater. There was no fire. And now you have all of these lawmakers deciding that the way they can um, rise in their party is by putting forward legislation on fire safety or theater fire safety. They've totally jumped over the first part of what is supposed to be your job as a legislator, which is to decide whether the thing that you're spending all your time on actually exists. They're jumping over that, which is kind of the core job of government, which is to see an urgent need and then marshal all of the powers of government towards it. This is a total, there is no urgent need. And yet the the amount of energy that's being aimed towards this and that's not just happening in Texas, that's happening in any of these places where this is a, a sort of backwards way to run government. Do you guys think that the people who are putting forward these laws are as cynical as John's characterization there just suggests, which is that they don't, or do they actually, because they've been pickled in, they've been marinated in, they've been boiled in a stew concocted by OAN and Donald Trump and Fox News, that they actually believe this and therefore it does feel urgent to them and they feel they are passing something important? Or do you think it's a cynical exercise? I mean, on the best possible political issues, you can get people riled up without requiring them to be totally disingenuous. So there are people who believe, well, people might cheat. And so what's wrong with making sure that people don't cheat? And so um, even if there's no demonstrated evidence of cheating or the evidence of cheating is puny, minuscule, infinitesimal, and requiring a high-powered microscope to see, it doesn't matter because in, in theory, people might cheat and therefore we should do these things. And oh, by the way, other states have similar laws and we still allow you know certain amount of voting and you could still vote by mail and therefore it's not totally shutting off the vote. But again, it comes back to whether all the time and attention applied towards this is commensurate with the challenge. And it's not. And when things get out of whack like that, it's when political success is based on public demonstrations of, of these kinds of things. Um, I would just add one more thing is that on these kinds of issues, you see how low the threshold is for concerted action to get to the bottom of a perceived threat. Imagine if that same level of focus about a perceived threat were aimed for just a second at the underlying things that led to the 6th of January. I mean, on the 6th of January, the Republican Party has decided they're not interested at all. On this, they're deeply interested in a thing where there's not public evidence that there's a lot of it.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. John, where is my infrastructure bill? I was promised an infrastructure bill. Where is my infrastructure bill? It's coming one way or the other. President is still negotiating with Republicans. You know, it's what is infrastructure? How's it defined? How's it going to get paid for? And is it worth is the idea of bipartisanship really worth anything as a public good kind of on its own, because there is a way that this can be done with Democratic votes only. Yeah. What I don't get is why there has been this extremely long, I guess it's not long by historical standards. It's long by the impatient standards of today, negotiation with Republicans about this bill when it's anyone who has had any lived experience over the past 13 years knows that there is not a compromise bill to be had and they will not pass a compromise bill and they will end up with a Democratic-only bill. And so why not just get it done and move forward? Two reasons. One, because there is some interest in trying to do it with Republicans. But the bigger one is that you have to look like you tried to do it with Republicans in order to get Manchin and Cinema, who are the who get you to 50. So part of it is real and part of it is theater. And it's theater just for Manchin and Cinema Because I actually don't think Democratic voters, and I'm not even sure much of the country ultimately would care that much if all of a sudden there was an infrastructure bill and they weren't really aware of how it came to pass. No, but it's, 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 if it's for mansion cinema, then I can understand why it's necessary. If it's just for the public, I don't understand why the, the theatrics are necessary. The, the public is massively behind most of, of the major parts of this legislation. You, you know, Obama used to do this, which is exhaust all the efforts to try and do it in a bipartisan way. And then when those fail, do it your way. I think Purchase price of mansion and cinema on a variety of things. Infrastructure filibuster reform is of shifting target, but it's a necessary target. And I think they need to be able to say, look, the, there was a good faith effort made to try and have bipartisan compromise. It failed. We're going to vote with this anyway. I mean, isn't one big question how long this drags out? I mean, with the Obama administration, with the Affordable Care Act, it dragged out for what seemed to me like absolutely forever. I mean, in all fairness to the people who continue to push for bipartisan support, is it possible that big pieces of social benefit legislation in the past become more rooted in the American system if they have bipartisan support? So I'm thinking of Medicare and Medicaid, which were established in 1965, and there were both Republican and Democratic votes for them. Or to go back further in history to 1935, the law establishing Social Security also passed with some Republican support, even though we mostly think of it as an FDR, Democratic, New Deal piece of legislation. A, John will give the, the historical rebuttal in one second. I would say, even if that is true, which I don't know whether it is true, even if it were true, we live in such a different age that polarization. It, it, is, it is a known fact. Now, I deplore, I would love there to be a, a bipartisan infrastructure bill where, you know, we build a whole bunch of dumb highways that I don't think should be built, but we also get a whole bunch of, you know, child care centers built, which I do think should be built. And that's a compromise. I would love that. But I think we all who who have any experience, like 
and have breathed the air of Washington know that such a bill is not really tenable and not really possible. And every minute that it is spent on the bogus, phony theatrics of it is a minute wasted towards getting an actual bill passed and then moving on to whatever the next thing is. And so I, I yes, it would. I, I'm sure it is the case that that bipartisan bills are more durable, but not that much. It's not that it's not worth it. And also, like a lot of the stuff that was New Deal legislation was basically passed. You know, it was rammed down the throat of of FDR's opposition. And yes, people are for Social Security now, but a lot of them weren't then. Yeah, I definitely was wrong about Social Security. I take that one back. You also had, I mean, the parties are far different than than they were. The question is whether bipartisanship is the, if you add a drop of bipartisanship, does it change the political system? Or is bipartisanship just a, a result of a political system where you have to have bipartisanship? When you have more split ticket voting, when you have a greater mixing of different kinds of voters, you need bipartisanship because it's the only way you're going to get your majority. And therefore, it has all these other salutary effects. But if the structure of the system right. doesn't exist, then right. adding some bipartisanship is like, oh, that's pretty. And now we're going to go back to the way we were. And that's the emerging view. And I should add one other emerging view among Democrats, many of whom were in a, and you see this in Ezra Klein's interview with Barack Obama. But one of the interesting things about this theory is, so let's say you scrap bipartisanship because you realize it no longer does, it's no longer the byproduct of a system. The system is far more polarized. Then you start looking at the results of things that were passed by Joe Biden with a Democratic, uh, only Democratic votes among households with children. Food shortages have dropped 42% in January through April. Financial instability has fallen 43%. Anxiety and depression has fallen more than 20%. So if you start to be able to get fast results as a result of a partisan bill, like the American Rescue Plan, then the question is, does that change politics? Um, can you show that to a mansion in cinema and say, look, this bipartisan thing you're talking about that you think helps you politically, and of course it must in the state that Joe Biden lost by 30 points for Joe Manchin, or maybe it does in a state that Joe Biden lost by 30 points. If you can show all these results, then maybe there's not such a big deal to not doing a bipartisan thing. I mean, mansion and cinema, mansion and cinema, it's like a it's like a bad cop, buddy cop movie from the 80s. What are the, the issues that everyone's so concerned about mansion cinema around? Is it filibuster reform itself or is it the specifics of the infrastructure bill? Because it's clear like things like voting reform and police reform are not going to get 60 votes. Right. But so, the, so I, their mean, votes don't I think matter, the question really. of filibuster reform is important, right? Because you could change the filibuster rules without getting rid of the filibuster. In other words, you could say, well, just as we've exempted um, certain legislation involving the budget and involving judicial nominees from the filibuster rule, we're also going to exempt bills that seek to protect the democracy, right? And then that would get you H.R. 1 or maybe some better bill the Democrats could pass about voting rights. So I feel like that's one aspect of filibuster reform that's important. You know, we shouldn't lose sight of the number of bills that are going to pass with 60 votes. You could easily get a... I mean, the, the policing bill could pass with 60 votes. There might be a lot of people unhappy about it, but... There's evidence that um, Cory Booker is working with Tim Scott and might get 60 votes, in part because if Scott is in support of it, he'll get 
nine other Republicans, the thinking goes. There's also a surface transportation bill, which might not be sexy, but it's full of infrastructure of the kind we were just talking about that's likely to pass with bipartisan support. There's also a China competitiveness bill that's right. pretty damn big that's going to yeah, pass. Yeah, $120 billion, I think. So it's, that used to be real money. The uh, So there are these pockets of bipartisanship that do still um that do still exist out there. But I should say one of the reasons for the bipartisan theater is if you're going to get rid of the filibuster, that will be such a big moment in whatever form. That'll be such a big national moment that it's not just mansion and cinema who um, need cover. It's people who, you know, might are running in states like Colorado who need to be able to say, look, we did everything we could to try to work with Republicans. I'm talking about Democrats now, of course. We did everything we could to try and work with Republicans. They wouldn't do it, even on infrastructure, which has been a, you know, time-honored bipartisan thing. Therefore, we had to get rid of the filibuster. So you have to try publicly for things beyond just the success of the infrastructure bill. I honestly don't think Americans would care one shake of a lamb's tail, one wit, one straw, if the filibuster were gone, I just don't think there is. How a many people really know what the filibuster well, is? I just and how with. many? And yeah, I just don't understand why there is such a fear of what the voter backlash would be. Yeah. I understand why Mansion and Cinema might not want to support it. I can understand that, but I don't understand why the the Democrats as a whole think it's a bad electoral. The votes voters don't care about some procedural issues, even one as big as the filibuster. I think it depends on what, you, what we mean by voters. I think in the broad, big, messy, like population of the United States, I think I'm totally with you. If it is a thing that in that inflames to a glowing white hot burn your opposition in an off year election, then I think you do have issues to worry about when you've got states like Ohio, potentially Iowa, Wisconsin, Florida, all up for grabs. You want you have to think through whether an issue not just, you know, if it inflames the opposition's voters from now until Election Day, that's something you do have to think about. I just keep coming back to the fact that the filibuster fundamentally causes legislation not to be passed. The filibuster is designed to prevent laws from being passed in general. That's the effect. And in general, if you're a Democrat, you want laws to be passed. You believe in federal action. And if you're a Republican, you generally don't. So the filibuster is has in, built into it a tilt that is in the Republicans' favor. And I think if, I, if you're a Democrat, even if you believe, as I suspect they should, that they will not hold the Senate for most of the next 30 years, even if you believe that, you should still want the filibuster gone. Because when you, on the occasions when you do have it, you will have the capacity to pass laws that you actually want to pass, whereas you do not have that capacity now. And it's, and it's made all these democratic policy efforts uh, stillborn. And that's, that's been terrible for them as a party because they have a lot of stuff they want to do. So I think they should ditch it. And I should say my argument about the voters wasn't an argument for or against getting rid of the filibuster. It was just evidence of why it's not completely meaningless in terms of the voters out there. Again, going back to what I said before, I think if you can say, had a filibuster been able to block the American Rescue Plan, you wouldn't have all these good numbers that are associated with its passage, which might be an argument for certain voters. Emily, is Joe Manchin so unreasonable? He's such an unreasonable person for his skepticism about the filibuster or his demanding bipartisan negotiations about an infrastructure bill or his skepticism about H.R. 1 or whatever it is. I have so much sympathy for that guy. Well, then you don't think he's unreasonable. I mean, 
He's speaking from a different era, it seems to me. He's also speaking from a conservative state. I guess the thing I don't quite get about Joe Manchin is, does he really think he's going to win re-election the next time around? Just the demographics of West Virginia make that seem kind of unlikely no matter what. But, John, what do you think? Am I wrong about that? Well, I mean... He's been elected before in awful circumstances in in West Virginia. I mean, he has his own. We should note, by the way, that just in terms of the differences between the two parties, I mean, there are conservative Democrats. You know, Manchin and Sinema are two of them. You, there are others who are kind of close. Susan Collins, I guess, is the is a, is a would be a less conservative, less Trump Republican, and Mitt Romney too. But they don't. Have they don't cause the challenge in the, their parties the way these two do? So it's just a difference between the two parties. But I think Manchin has his own po- different political weather in West Virginia that he's been able to. Um, and yet, in the going. past, people didn't people split their tickets more than yeah. they do now, right? When you look at the reduction in split ticket voting, you think like, no, like his, his time is over, and he should just like make the most of it, figure out what he wants to do, and go do it. Well, they split it with him. I mean, they've been splitting with him and they split it with Collins. But believe me, as the one of the world's greatest, I mean, split the death of split ticket voting is very. Yeah, no, it's definitely I thought I real. might get you a got me. Uh, no, no, no. It's F- a powerful thing. But it but it but, doesn't exist in in West Virginia and Maine. There are kind of exceptions to the rule. I guess I feel like the Democrats look at Manchin and are like grumpy and resentful and like, oh, why don't you give it up and and just fall on your sword and, you know, vote vote for whatever the most progressive policies are and and destroy the coal industry because you're not going to win re-election. I think the Democrats should be looking and saying, like, how can we get some really conservative Democrats elected in places like North Carolina, in places like Texas, in other states, and maybe in Montana, where there is still the possibility that the Democrat can can win. And Manchin should not be this thing that people are grumbling and resentful about, but should be an icon for what they should be doing instead of running whoever that that little turd in North Carolina who blew it. Uh, they should have found somebody who's who could win that state. Democrats have put themselves in this awkward position wherever they keep blaming Manchin for this or that. Manchin li- has to live by different political rules than the rest of them. And maybe they should try to get like a situation where they win in other states that are more winnable. I mean, presumably that candidate is economically liberal and socially conservative. In other words, a Democrat who is not pro-choice, who is pro-gun, and who believes in lots of, you know, help for struggling Americans, for the middle class. And that candidate, I mean, I think that's such a fascinating mix of qualities. It would be hard to get past the whatever the sort of litmus test the party itself imposes before giving money to such a candidate, right? They'd have to, like, take off on their own charisma and have their own funding base, I think. We should say that David's argument is is uh, put into words by President Obama in his interesting interview with Ezra Klein, and it's worth reading since we're not going to go into a long discussion or listening to. Um, oh, reading or listening to. Yes, it's both a transcript and a podcast. Slate Plus members, you spend $1 for the first month of your membership and you get so many great things. You get no ads on any slate podcast. You get bonus episodes of shows like slow burn and you get bonus segments every week here on the gab fest. You can sign up by going to slate.com slash gab fest plus. And I would urge you to do that. We've had some amazing slate plus discussions in recent weeks. It's like the third age, the efflorescence of slate plus lucky slate plus members have heard us going deep on a lot of stuff. Today, we're going to talk about Naomi Osaka, the tennis player, and the issue of what is it that 
athletes and other public figures owe the public in terms of how they communicate with them. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member today. Now we're joined by Pat Starkey. He is a professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton. He is also the founder of AmericanViolence.org, which is a project to track and visualize violence in the U.S. And he's here to talk to us about the terrible surge in violence and violent crime that we're seeing across the U.S. All right, what I think is a terrible surge in violence and violent crime. Maybe I'm wrong. So actually, Pat, can you just start by giving listeners and me some of the most telling numbers about violence in America right now and whether it's rising everywhere, for whom is it rising, what kind of violence is rising, if it is? Sure, yeah, happy to. Um, thanks for having me on. So there has been this huge increase in violence, uh, and there are a few different ways to look at it. So over the past year, in, in 2020 in particular, I think the overall level of gun violence rose you know, somewhere between 25 to 30 percent across the country as a whole. How many people is that? How many souls is that who've died? It looks like we don't have the final data, but it looks like about 4,000 more people were murdered in 2020 when compared with 2019. Um, so it's this really stark and very sad increase that that goes on top of all the suffering last year uh, from the coronavirus and everything else that happened. There was this surge of, of violence that took place across the country. And then in particular cities, it was uh, an even more uh, sharp increase where you know you had cities that were, Portland is an example where I've just been looking at data from Portland. This is a city that has been extraordinarily safe uh, but just had a huge increase of violence that has made the rate of shootings basically similar to most big cities across the country. So you had this really sharp shift from a very safe city to a city that all of a sudden is dealing with this problem of gun violence. Um, and then there are a bunch of cities that have been violent places for a long time where the level of gun violence really skyrocketed. New York City has been safe, but there was a sharp increase in gun violence in New York. But then Detroit, uh, St. Louis, um, Chicago had really sharp increases in gun violence, where in some cases, the number of shootings doubled uh, last year. So it's not a myth. There is a crisis of gun violence, and it is gun violence. It's interesting that you mentioned that because it's not that overall crime has risen. In fact, overall crime, if you, you know, most crime is property crime and, and overall crime probably dropped last year. We don't know that with certainty, but the level of overall crime is probably going to be slightly lower in 2020. At the end of the day, when the numbers come in, it's really gun violence that skyrocketed. Usually when criminologists and experts like you talk about whether crime, violent crime is rising or falling, they're... It's multifactorial. It's really hard to know exactly what the causes are. Some of the theories that are being offered right now for this particular spike, there's a huge rise in the number of people who own guns, right? Or just, I should say, I guess, like the number of firearms sold. But I think a lot of the people buying them are people who didn't have guns before. And then there's the pandemic and the economic dislocation, all the kids who were out of school, the shutting down of violence prevention programs in some cities. And then there's the question of whether the protests after the death of George Floyd have some kind of association here, not because the protests themselves caused 
more people to shoot each other, but because the police in some cities may have pulled back or may have felt like they pulled back. And you can tell that story in a way that's critical of the police or more sympathetic to them. And I wonder what you think about whether there's anything we can really say that's helpful for understanding causality at this point or whether it's just too soon. Well, it's too soon in the sense that we don't have great research on what actually happened. And when I say great research, like, you know, we need to collect a lot more data uh, on what happened in 2020. But we we also need really good ethnography. We need people who were on the ground to give a, a sense, to give an analysis of how the social order within communities changed last year. And we just don't have that really high level, uh, rigorous ethnographic research yet. But all the things that you mentioned, Emily, are part of an explanation for, for what changed last year. Um, it's just really parsing out kind of which were the most important factors. Um, the surge in gun ownership is really amazing. Uh, it's, it's disturbing to see how many uh, new permits and background checks uh, came in last year. This is, you know, more people bought guns last year than ever before in the history of the country. And that's the legal guns, right? Whereas often it's the illegal guns that are involved in homicides and shootings. There's actually not the greatest evidence linking purchases of guns with increases in violence. But what we know at just a descriptive level is that when there are more guns out in circulation, there's more gun violence. And that's not a shock, but um, that is a very stable relationship. And it's also true that there are more police officers shot in places where there are more guns and police officers shoot more people when in places where there are more guns. One thing that I've kind of been focusing on is the increase in alcohol consumption. Um, you know, so the bars shut down, but people drank more. And, and this is kind of an underappreciated factor uh, that affects violence to just, just our, our consumption of alcohol. But then, as you mentioned, institutions shut down. You know, the, the kind of core institutions that um, structure people's lives the basic foundation of community life broke down last year. And then you have this other shock, uh, which was the video of, of George Floyd being murdered. And the response to that, we should not think about this and conclude that protests for police brutality cause violence. Um, the way that I think you have to, to um, interpret what happened is that when there is a social order that relies on the police to dominate public space. And when that is kind of the way that, that neighborhoods work, and then that breaks down, and that breaks down for very good reasons. That breaks down because people all over the country said, we're not going to continue living this way. And it, and it breaks down because police may change the way that they intervene in incidents and interactions. And it also changes because residents change the way that they interact with the police and, and check out and say, we're not going to go along with this. We're not going to keep providing information. We're not going to call the police uh, if there's an issue. So when you have that social order that's dependent on the police dominating public space through brute force, and then that breaks down, it creates the conditions for violence to emerge. That, that level of disruption and breakdown creates the conditions that make communities vulnerable to violence. The 25-year, 30-year decline in murder and in violent crime in this country is really one of the amazing 
bright spots of the past few decades. And it was, it clearly had to end. Like there was at some point you knew that, that these numbers would go in a different direction or would stabilize, we get flat. A, was it, was this the period when you would expect it to end? And B, do you think given that the factors you just talked about were really triggered by the pandemic for the most part, but would you expect these effects to wane as the pandemic wanes? Violence is not, you know, it's not like uh, these causes led to an increase and now that the causes are gone, violence will fall. Uh, a set of causes led to the spike in, in shootings and then that spike in shootings builds on itself. You know, so right. it's, it's a right. little tricky to predict that, you know, once institutions open back up, then things will go back to normal. I wrote a book on the decline of violence and um, I was initially going to call the book American Peace. You know, it was, it was kind of a celebration of this long term drop in violence. And as I got deeper and deeper into the research and into the writing and saw Trump elected and saw Jeff Sessions, you know, uh, appointed as attorney general and, and saw the changes that were being made, I ended up changing the title to Uneasy Peace. And, and, and the reason was because even though we had this long term, the really stunning drop in violence and that had this enormous uh, set of benefits experienced in the most disadvantaged segments of, of the population, the most disadvantaged communities, we also did not change the way that we invest and disinvest in communities. So the U.S. was still in a position where we were relying on heavy-handed policing and mass incarceration as the primary, not the only, but the primary methods to deal with violence. And, and, and so as, as long as we continue to not address the underlying conditions that, that create extreme urban inequality, that lead to the breakdown of institutions and communities that create the conditions for violence to emerge. You know, the argument was that we actually had not reached a stable state where we could expect that, that communities were strong, they would function, they were no longer vulnerable to increases in, in violence. The approaches that have been used or that we've relied on as a nation to deal with violence create all this, these costs, create resentment uh, create uh, what Monica Bell, a legal scholar at Yale, calls legal estrangement, the feeling that segments of the community are not protected by the law, are not served by the law, are not part of that citizenry. Um, and so as long as we kind of kept that system intact, where public space is dominated by the police, where we utilize mass incarceration, where we prosecute people uh, uh, aggressively, and that's our approach to to dealing with the the consequences of extreme urban inequality. Then the decline in violence was not stable, and I, I do think that's been borne out this past year. So, I mean, I report on some of the people who you're talking about, and um, you know, if you grow up and you learn not to trust the police because they mistreat you and they mistreat other people around you. And then you carry a gun or you think about carrying a gun because like, really, no one else is going to protect you and the threat is real. It's hard to break that cycle, um, especially, as you say, once um, reprisal shootings start. And so to me, that has to be part of the explanation of why the violence isn't immediately abating, even if it was caused by the worst conditions of the pandemic. You have some really 
um, heartening findings, though, about the roles that community nonprofits can play um, in de-escalating violence and about the work of violence interruption, which is involving community members and doing some of the prevention work or some of the response, like, for example, going to hospital rooms when someone's been shot to try to prevent the momentum for a reprisal shooting from gathering. Those efforts have kind of been like a little bit um, coming through in some cities and there's some money nurturing them, but they've never gotten anything like the kind of funding and support that we give to the police and to mass incarceration. And I wonder if you think that that's the best path forward in terms of trying to prevent um, this trend from continuing. Yeah, thanks for raising that, Emily. So there is a body of research going back decades and and social theory really are that makes clear that the communities that are resistant to violence are communities where residents know each other where residents uh, are connected to each other where there are a core set of institutions and you know that includes religious congregations but it also includes um, after school programs community health centers organizations that are dealing with homelessness, with addiction. The, the finding from this literature is, is that when a community has this set of institutions and they're functioning and they're supported and they're sustained uh, and residents are connected to each other, that's a community that is unlikely to be vulnerable to violence. That's a community that, even if it's a very poor community, uh, it's unlikely to be a community that goes downhill uh, it's unlikely to be a community where there are these kinds of surges in, in violence. We have this really strong evidence base saying that if we invest in the institutions that serve as a foundation for communities, that make sure that no one falls through the cracks, that make sure that every space within the community is safe and is, is maintained and cared for, then violence will not rise. That's as strong as the research on, on policing. It's just that that research has never entered into public policy debates. Um, so we have this knee-jerk reaction to a spike in violence, and, and we can see it happening right now, where cities turn right back to the police and the prison system as the answers to an increase in violence. Uh, and we've never given that same investment to community residents and to community organizations, despite the evidence that these are the groups that are most effective at dealing with violence. They've just never been given the same resources and the same investment and the same commitment as the police and the prison system. Is there one place that public policy or the politicians should focus on to make the kind of opposite case? Because Portland is pointed to so frequently in the political conversation as a place where see what happens when you, you know, don't have cops doing what they need to do. Is there basically a counterweight place? There are some examples of places that have kind of taken on this challenge of developing a new approach. And I think the best example is Ithaca, New York, of all, of all places, um, where uh, incredible researcher Philip Atiba Goff, uh, who runs the Center for Policing Equity, has um, worked with the town to develop a new model for dealing with calls for service, for dealing with the, the basic challenges that uh, for which we usually rely on the police. And the goal is solving problems. The goal is providing assistance to people who need it. With armed police officers 
as secondary responders, uh, armed police officers being on call. That said, I would I would point to Ithaca as kind of a model for for what might be possible moving forward. It represents the ideals of investing in community organizations. It, it, it exemplifies the ideal of focusing on well-being, focusing on solving problems, uh, as opposed to dominating public space, which is the way we've kind of responded to all the challenges that come bundled when you have extreme urban inequality. Pat Sharkey, thanks for joining us on the GabFest. Listeners, you should definitely check out AmericanViolence.org. It is a really great tool for looking at this surge in violence that Pat's been talking about, and it's a really well-designed website, so mazel tov on that. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Good talking with all of you. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are sitting in your airy in New York, John Dickerson, gazing out upon Gotham from the clouds, above the clouds, possibly, on the 114th floor... <laughs> Sipping on a cocktail, what will you be chattering about? I'm chattering about two things, one thing to watch and one thing to read. The one thing to watch is uh, Catherine Schultz's TED Talk about regret from, I think, 2014. It's from some time ago. And it's just great. I came across it completely randomly. And she's a writer for The New Yorker, and it's great. The other is a piece from Cal Newport in The, in the New Yorker called What If Remote Work Didn't Mean Working From Home. This is a topic, of course, near to my heart, the um, efficiencies and ways in which we work. Um, and it, con- it contains some great anecdotes, which I won't ruin, but about how Peter Benchley wrote Jaws and how Maya Angelou wrote uh, which are both, um, well, I'll, anyway, you should read the article. So they're both worth um, reading for that alone, but it's also a good argument. Emily, what is your chatter? I am urging on anyone who needs a little down-to-earth escapism to go enjoy watching Mayor of Easttown, which doesn't really need me to promote it. It's getting You're tons kinda of You're kind of late. Kind of late on this. If the finale was this week, I feel that the finale is still a a news event that can be. I'm always late to everything. Um, But I especially, so two things about the show. First of all, God bless Kate Winslet for looking entirely her age and not letting them, you know, fix all the flaws that come with being a middle-aged woman. It was just so refreshing and honestly inspiring to see on the screen. And... Thank you, Mayor of Easttown creators, for setting the show in the Philadelphia suburbs of Chester County and having at least some of the characters really try to do a Philadelphia accent, which just warmed my heart. I mean, I don't think they all did it, like, consistently throughout, but there were a lot of, like, pronunciations of home as home, which is the pronunciation I grew up with. And someone even said wooder instead of water, which is just my favorite. And I used to have to correct at least one of my sisters or at least try to, because that's how people said water where we grew up. So Mayor of Easttown, if you haven't already checked it out and you don't have all the score for me that David has, um, you should go do so. A, I've watched it. So I loved it. And, but you did feel very, rather late. B, there's a great interview with Kate Winslet about some of the making her look her age and herself, which totally. I actually thought was slightly condescending to the people of Pennsylvania because it was all like talking about her dress and it would be like, oh, I'd see the ugliest pair of jeans and I'd get that. It was it was very Well, she did have a lot of like Ocean City t-shirts, yeah. like the Jersey and, Shore, the Poconos, all the landmarks of my growing up made it a, had a moment on the show. And question three or point three, Emily, 
maybe this is a topic for Slate Plus. Why do you not have any kind of accent? I mean, I try to beat it out of myself. My parents didn't grow up in Philadelphia. I think that makes a difference. But I mean, so many people I grew up with, so many of my parents' friends do have that accent. And it's um, both... <laughs> it's like I love it and hate it at the same time. I have it has such I have such a strong sense of identifying with it and yet it's just kind of awful. It's not one of America's most attractive accents. I, I will like say it. that. Yeah, mm. you like it. Good. I wouldn't I go down to the Acme. <laughs> My chatter actually is following up on something that Pat Starkey was talking about in our third segment involving Ithaca. So we on the GabFest, have talked a lot since last summer about the idea of, of social workers and mental health professionals replacing cops for certain kinds of 911 calls. And I just want to point folks to a wonderful episode of CityCast Denver. I know this is log rolling for my, my other job, but it was a great episode of CityCast Denver this week on Tuesday, June 1st, where we interviewed a social worker who's part of Denver's test of what's called support team assisted response, where they send an unmarked van which has paramedics, social workers, uh, mental health professionals to respond to certain 911 calls. So an indecent, indecent exposure call, which is a homeless person changing clothes or someone experiencing a mental health crisis. And Denver, they've been doing this now for a year. They've had 1,400 calls, not a single arrest or involvement of police for these calls, not one. These were all calls that historically the cops would have been sent to and who knows what would have happened, but involving these folks, they don't have to escalate. They don't need to call on the cops. Obviously, they're not doing it for all calls. They're doing it for a certain subset that they're screening. It seems like one of these ideas that is good in all respects. It saves money. It saves lives. It increases humanity. It saves self-respect. Um, so at Denver, it looks like, is about to expand this significantly. Anyway, you should check out the CityCast Denver at denver.citycast.fm. And it's called Responding to 911 Calls with Sweatpants and Snacks, Not Guns. It's really good. Listeners, you have also sent us excellent chatters. Please continue to tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest. And this week's listener chatter comes from James Williams. Let's hear from James Williams. Hey, Gabfest, it's James Williams from Greensboro, North Carolina. I wanted to chatter today about a journal article I ran across in my Twitter feed uh, called "Epidemics and Trust: The Case of the Spanish Flu." The article is really interesting because it digs into this concept of social trust. I've thought about it a lot, I think most of us have over the last year, but it was really interesting to see them quantify it and bring it in as, a, as an object that can be studied, um, that can have consequences downstream in terms of how we relate to each other familially, how we relate to each other societally, uh, how we have an economy. Social trust has an impact on the economy. They actually get so far as to quantify it into this many deaths reduces social trust by this percentage, which I, it's just an interesting approach. But I thought, especially as we're coming out of COVID, this is an article that was written throughout COVID, finally published this year. It was just a really interesting uh, way to bring that concept in and start talking about it uh, intelligently. I think what's interesting about that article is about how some of the economic downstream effects and it had a measurable push down in the GDP because of the decline in social trust, as I sure will feel the same thing post this pandemic. And there was an amazing set of data I saw, which I came from a business school, which suggested GDP would be down as much as 3% 
in 2050 because of the lost, this is a different point, of lost education during the pandemic. So mm. there's this huge impact that, that we have, which isn't just the death and suffering of today. It's things that we will suffer for years and years and years to come. That is our show for today. I wish I could bottle the expression that Emily Vaslin just had on her face. It was very quizzical, excellent quizzical face. Good quizzical face, Emily. You made me think. The Gap is, is produced this week by Margaret Kelly. Jocelyn is out again this week. She'll be back next week, I think. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, good. I hope you're well. You know who is not here for Slate Plus? John Dickerson. He abandoned he, us. He abandoned us because I was so late to start. John had to leave. So it is in, in some indirect way my fault, which is too bad because John is a tennis and sports person. So who knows? Emily, do you want to set us up for this Naomi Osaka conversation? Yeah. So Naomi Osaka is one of the best tennis players in the world. She's, I think, the best paid female athlete overall. She has something like $50 million a year coming in. She was playing in the French Open and she got into a fight with the officialdoms of the tennis world because she didn't want to do post-match interviews. These interviews are a standard part of the TV coverage. Osaka said she was um, suffering for mental health reasons and felt like the interviews were all about doubts that people had about her and that she just didn't want to do them. Um, and she opened up about suffering from depression in particular since she defeated Serena Williams in the U.S. Open in 2018, which is this big marker in her career. I just think it's a really interesting question. Are these interviews part of the sport, something that keeps fans interested in the story of the athletes, or should you be able to opt out of them? And I think sort of connected, but separately, it seems obvious to me that um, whatever you think about this particular fight Osaka is having with tennis, that it's really commendable that she came forward and talked about her depression and her mental health. That's something that athletes have been reluctant to do in the past to, to be upfront about that kind of um, struggle they're having. And so destigmatizing mental illness seems like a really good part of this picture here. But I have some questions about skipping the interviews. And David, I think what I wonder what you think about that as a, a not tennis particularly fan, but a overall sports. Yeah. Fan. Well, so there's I would first of all, uh, suggest that people turn off this podcast, go listen, there's a great hang up and listen episode section, a whole 20 minute conversation that podcast, the Slate Sports podcast had about this subject. And they hit on a really a lot of different issues. I mean, there's so many different things going on with Naomi Osaka. She's this iconic figure. She is uh, Japanese and Haitian. Uh, and she has she's Japan's now most celebrated sports figure. Huge weight on her shoulders from that. She's in massive endorsements. She's also famously like an introverted shy person uh she's also someone who speaks out on social justice issues she wore masks with the names of victims of police violence during uh, i think during the u.s open yep. this last last year she's a person who contains multitudes and it is true that she has benefited from uh, you know her her fame and in wealth and it's also true that she's borne costs from it because she's somebody who clearly 
has burdens and she has the burden of, of her illness, but also some people don't want to do press conferences and have to talk to people all the time and do podcasts and things like that. And it is, it is a weight on them. It's a really complicated issue. And I think there's not, it's not one of these things which is like, Oh, it's easy to say, you know, you have to meet your contractual obligation to do this press conference or, you know, Oh, you're, you know, you can never, if you, any athlete is free to, to answer any question or ignore any question and not have to do anything except play their sport. I don't think there's a simple situation. I want to hit on a couple of points, though. Now, having having uh, said that, caveated no everything yes. and recommended one, hang up and listen over yeah. us. Yes. yes, continue on. One is that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.